everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beanless and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm absolutely honored to have with us a guest that when I originally heard her story, I knew I had to get this individual on the pod. This guest has had Paralympic experiences and also numerous Grand Slam wheelchair tennis experiences, including competing at the past three U.S. Opens. One of the coolest things about having my podcast is being introduced to and meeting such guests and hearing their awesome journeys through the sport of tennis. And with this guest, this is no exception. It is my absolute privilege to welcome to the pod wheelchair tennis professional, Dana Matthewson. Dana, thank you so, so, so much for taking time and walking us through your amazing journey. I want to take you everywhere with me. That was a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Done. Um, thank you. You have an amazing story to, to share, and I cannot wait to get uh, started in hearing all your journey. Let's start with the question that I've asked everybody recently. Okay. How the heck are you doing during this very unique time? Well, I mean, like as a tennis player, and I think all tennis players, wheelchair or not, can relate. Like our life is pretty much living out of a suitcase. And so this is a very weird thing for me to be in one place for a long time. And so like I've had a lot of time to do random hobbies. Like I learned to crochet in this time, which I didn't think I'd do till I was like 90. Um, <laughs> I recently got a puppy, which has been really fun and also very time consuming. Um, and she's chewing a bone right now, so I'm not going to- there? Okay. Her. I was going to ask you to show it, but let's leave her yeah. alone. Right so I'm, I'm not going to tempt fate with that one, but <laughs> she's very good so far. Um, but no, I've been doing okay. I think that things like this, like Zoom calls and FaceTimes have made this really not so bad. Like I actually have more time to talk to my friends and family than I usually do in a weird way. And so I feel like I'm actually kind of gotten closer, solidified relationships more than before. So it's kind of had like goods and bads. And all your friends and family safe and everything, right? Yes, for the most part. I mean, I, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're all good. <laughs> as far as you know, all good. As as, yes, that's what I wanted to say. As far as I know, everyone's good. All my family's back in like California. Okay. Um, so and they're like isolating and being safe. And so they're good. And just for the listeners, you're right near the Lake Nona campus, right? I am. I live like 10 minutes away. Okay. So let's get to your story because it is absolutely okay. uh, incredible. Um, and we're going to get to some of your amazing experiences, some of your awesome accomplishments. But if you don't mind, um, for the listeners that don't know um, about you, if you can kind of walk us through your story. Um, and it started around 10 years old. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up a very active kid. My mom was a huge um, supporter of like, you know, extracurriculars. I have an older brother, Scott, and she would sign us up for soccer or like art classes or all sorts of stuff. So we were always active going and doing something. And soccer happened to be the thing that I loved. And so I would go every week, you know, my best friends were, you know, on my team and it was great. And when I was 10 and a half, uh, one day at soccer practice, my back just started to hurt really badly. And like in my tailbone area, I was doing suicide sprints at the end. And I was thinking- We all thinking know what those are. We, we all yeah. know what those are. Everyone knows what those are. <laughs> They're horrible. Um, and I just remember my back hurting really badly. And then, you know, you go through the Rolodex in your head, like, okay, what happened? Did I get hit? Did I fall? Um, none of those things was, was the case. So I was a little confused. Um, the pain- 
increased. And I remember asking my coach, you know, can I sit out? And he was like, well, it's the end of practice. It's probably a cramp. Just keep going. And so I remember trying to do that and my legs felt heavier and heavier. And fast forward to maybe like an hour, hour and a half later, I was lying on the floor at home. Um, and I remember looking at my foot, trying to move it and just nothing was happening. And so luckily both my parents are physicians, so they could take me to the hospital fast enough and I could get seen and they diagnosed me as having transverse myelitis, which is basically an autoimmune disease that attacks your spinal cord and can leave you completely paralyzed from any level. So I'm relatively lucky that it happened at my waist and not like up at my neck, but there's still no rhyme or reason. It's so rare that they don't really know why it happens in people still. Like it can happen to children, it can happen to adults. There's really no pattern. That at any see. time, and any, any- At any time, can... I've heard stories of toddlers getting it. I've heard of um, elderly people getting it. So it's one of those, like, I want a really weird lottery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, do so you, now, because your parents got you to the hospital very quickly, do you think that helped from it spreading up because you're like ways down, right? Yes, it definitely. Uh, so the way that the that the disease works, it it kind of attacks laterally. So it it doesn't really hit the spinal cord and spread up or down. It can basically just hit at any level, and then basically it's almost like does it sever everything in its path, or does it kind of only affect it a little bit, and then some of that spinal cord can remain intact. Okay. And in my case, the pain I was feeling was my my nerves in my spinal cord kind of getting severed or really damaged from that swelling that happens whenever your body's in trauma. So um, the steroids for me helped combat the swelling and kind of preserve the integrity of my spine. So if I didn't get this, the steroids in time, I'd, I don't think I'd be more disabled in terms of a level, like up higher with my arms or anything. It would just be that my disability would be more complete than it is now. Because you do have some feeling... I do. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very fortunate with that. Um, I was a complete paraplegic for, I would say, you know, I don't even know, you know, when things like this happen, I think your brain has a really smart way of blocking out certain memories, but it was at least months of time. Um, so, and when I say complete para, I mean that I had no function or sensation um, beneath the level of my injury. So you could have chopped my foot off and I wouldn't know unless you told me or I saw it, <laughs> right. but um, luckily, yeah, it slowly came back. My mom kind of likened it to having a baby that was like learning to walk again. Cause for me, it was like my muscles were asleep and they were just waking up very slowly one at a time. And um, so unfortunately, not all of my muscles could wake up again as it were, but um, a majority of them did. So I can feel my legs and I can wait bare and I can walk. It's just not what you would call quote unquote normal because some of those muscles just aren't kind of participating anymore. No, thank you for describing that. Cause I know yeah. the, the people who are <laughs> listening to this would want to know the, you know, the type of level where that is at. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. So for all the sciencey people out there, I'm at T10, which is your belly button level, but it could happen anywhere. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's obviously a huge, huge lifestyle, you know, change to say the least right <laughs> so you're 10 years old um yeah. here you are an active child running around soccer field running around doing everything with your friends this happens and yeah. in, in life it's all about how you respond to something like this now you're 10 years old at the time so i'm yeah. gonna have to give credit to your parents a little bit here a ton of credit to you down the road but right no, away percent give credit to my mom <laughs> in that instance like i remember i was in the hospital for about a month and when I got back home, 
I remember just having this thought in my mind, like, oh, I'm not going to have to do chores anymore. Like, life is going to be smooth sailing. And my mom, I remember um, I got home and she said some comment about, um, well, you can still empty the dishwasher and you can still do things like that. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, she, you know, she, she was a very strong um like proponent of saying like, you know what? Yeah, your legs don't work, but your whole upper body is still very functional and you can do a heck of a lot around the house and you're not going to sit on the couch and, you know, get lazy and out of shape. Like you're still going to really keep moving. And I think after a disability, life can really go one of two ways. You can either really get sucked into it and that becomes your whole identity or you kind of like, you know, your personality changes a little or your outlook on life changes a little, but your disability is just a facet of you. It's not everything. And I really credit my mom and like the people that were in my life at the time for me becoming the latter of those two. Yeah. Uh, credit to you and your support system. So <laughs> yeah, I'm very thankful. I didn't let's... have a mom like babying me and stuff. Cause that could have gone the wrong way. Right. So let's <laughs> talk tennis. Now you got injured at, you know, when you were 10, yeah. you didn't go into, and I, and I, in, in previous research, I saw you, your mom kind of pushed you into a tennis camp, but this wasn't like right after you got injured. This was a couple years later, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I really had no interest in adaptive or wheelchair or disabled sports, whichever way you want to refer to them. Um, prior to my injury, I don't think I knew anyone that was disabled apart from maybe an elderly individual that needed a wheelchair or maybe someone who also had a mental disability that I'd maybe seen in passing, but I really wasn't exposed to disability at all. And so in my mind, there was no way that any sort of wheelchair sport would live up to the experiences that I had had previously with sport that I played on my feet. And so I had no interest. Um, but luckily, again, going back to my mom, she had been consulted when I was in the hospital about all these different activities for kids, different camps and stuff. And she just signed me up for everything. And then tennis ended up being one of them years later. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, we need we need your mom on here. I mean, we got we got to get her some credit. <laughs> there are for people who want to listen. There are there is a very good interview out there. I forgot who it is, but you could YouTube it. There's a very sweet interview where they do interview your mom, and it's very very yeah, touching. Everybody and very, cry. Very good I think it's probably the best interview I've ever done. So yeah, that's <laughs> it's by Deloitte and the U.S. Open. So. Yep, yep. So go check that out. Um, okay. So obviously you took to tennis because you've, you've done some amazing things in it. Now, when did you play your first tournament as a child? How old were you? Um, I think that it would have been close to around the same time that I kind of started playing. I would say it would probably be between the time of like 13, 14, 15 years old. I don't remember the exact date. I could, okay. however, tell you exactly what I was wearing, and I can tell you where it was. <laughs> I remember I had, like, this light pink Ole Miss visor because a lot of my family went to Ole Miss that live in the <laughs> South. I have no affiliation with that school. I don't know why I was wearing that. I had, like, a bow in my hair, I think. It was at Irvine, um, like, University of Irvine, I think. Mm -hmm. They were hosting the tournament, and, yeah, I played in the men's division, and I think I won a doubles title, so that was Oh, wow, fun. first one. First tournament, yeah. first first title. That's huge. Yeah, fun. Um, <laughs> so obviously you took to it. You continued to play through high school. Um, the yeah. high school you attended didn't have a, a wheelchair tennis program, but you played outside the high school in both what USTA and ITF events. That's correct. Yeah, I would. Um, 
I would play down at the Barn Center in Point Loma, which is in San Diego. It's like really close to SeaWorld. It's a cool area. But they have a huge tennis center there. And I remember um, someone had told me that there's a group that meets twice a week, um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, like after work and after school times. And so I would go there and um, I was kind of like more or less adopted by all the other people that were there. And they kind of took me under their wing and, and helped me learn tennis. So that was very fun. But yeah, I did play some tournaments throughout my time at school. I didn't play a lot though, because school was always like my priority, but I definitely was always playing tennis like after school as like my little activity. Okay. And, and obviously you were good enough because you got, I think both an academic and a tennis scholarship to play at University of Arizona. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was very cool. I never thought that I would get a scholarship for um, sports. Um, or that I would be going to school in Arizona. Um, I don't know if I ever had a school in my head that I was like, that's where I'm going to go or anything. But um, yeah, going to Arizona was definitely one of the coolest experiences that I've ever had. And just to be able to say that I was recruited to play at a D1 school is pretty cool. Awesome. Now, um, talk about that program a little bit, because there's not a lot of Division I programs that have a wheelchair tennis program, correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's with wheelchair tennis in general, a lot of the players aren't from the United States, at least the ones that really can devote their time to it. And a lot of other countries don't have the sporting system in colleges that we do here in the able-bodied world. So um, there's just not the numbers in the United States to have these programs. They're, they're growing, definitely. I think that's a focus that the USTA is working on right now, which is pretty cool. Um, but when I was playing, there was um, U of A, then Alabama had a team. I think it's a lot bigger now than it was then. I think back then there was like one person. Um, I think University of Texas Arlington had people, but they were just basketball players that would come out. So there weren't a lot of people, but it's, it's something that is growing. But I, I really liked it because I had the structure of like, you know, waking up in the morning at 6 a.m. because it gets hot in Tucson and you got to practice before that heat comes and, you know, having that daily structure of practice and, you know, having to eat right and try to avoid the freshman 15, which I didn't completely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it was a really great addition to my, my time in college, for sure. Now, is it at that level, in the collegiate level, is it level-based or is it still gender-based? Uh, level-based. So the only time that tennis really gets gender-based is in the open circuit or the professional circuit. Okay. Everything before that, just because the numbers aren't there, they yeah. just kind of put you all together and then it's like, how good are you? This is where you're going to be. Right. And then because there, it wasn't like, because there were such, there were so few schools that had a similar program, you couldn't always just compete against and travel against other schools. You were, you were continuing to play USTA and ITF events still, right? Yeah, so basically it was pretty cool actually. Like instead of playing for Arizona, which I did really only once a year at Collegiate Nationals, the rest of the year I would practice with my team. When I traveled to a USTA or ITF tournament, I would, you know, wear Arizona stuff because Arizona was, um, you know, sponsoring us to go and things like that. But I really got to attend college and 
also get supported to compete for myself on the tour. Okay. That makes sense. So it was kind of yeah. cool. I don't know if able-bodied players would like that as well. They get yeah. To I mean, you had the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, it really was. And so I would get to, um, you know, you room with your teammates when you go to the tournaments and stuff like that. But then as long as you, you do your schoolwork and as long as you practice hard, they'll help you go play tournaments. And so that's what I got to do for my time in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, I know college tennis players, they'll play, um, you know, futures or whatever in the summer yeah. or even maybe in the fall. Obviously, they can't. Um, make sure they can't accept money that would question their eligibility, right. but they are, but I mean, the college tennis players do play a lot of um, pro tournaments when their schedule allows. That's true. That's um, true. Really cool. There was, before we, before we end your collegiate experience, there was a time where you stopped playing in college, right? I did. What yeah. was that about? I know I'm making it sound like I played tennis all through college and I really didn't. Um, I played my first two years that I was at Arizona. And then after that, I think that I was more or less burned out from tennis. I think that like, you know, as much as tennis has offered so much to me in the beginning parts of, you know, getting used to becoming disabled and um, just kind of exploring, you know, athletics in general in terms of what I could or couldn't do. I really think that I had done it so much from that high school point all the way through college that I just kind of wanted to do something else for a little bit. Um, and that's probably the same for kids that maybe do drama from early on or do art or whatever. Like you just kind of need to stop for a little bit. And, any And anything, um, any sport, just burn out. Yeah, anything. You just need a, you need a little break. And I got distracted with like, you know, my first big relationship. And then, you know, you want to join different clubs at school. And so I, I took what I call like a little hiatus from the sport. And then I think it was actually the best thing that I could have done because when I came back to tennis, I knew that it was because I chose to do it. It wasn't because it was like, well, this could be good for you, you know, cause you're growing up or something your, your parents want you to do. Like I really chose it. And that really made me, I guess, put extra effort in, in my second go around on the tour. So cool. So to time frame this a little bit, you were, you went to Arizona from 2009 to 2013. I think yes. you may have stayed like another year, but I then there was a, year, yeah. go ahead. Go I stayed ahead. another year because I, um, so I graduated with a bachelor's in speech and hearing sciences. And um, in that degree, you have to get a graduate degree to then work. And I, um, I wanted to work in, in the audiological field. And so I applied for their graduate program and I got in and I stayed there for another year. So okay. I was at Arizona for a long time. <laughs> Now, there's a little event uh, in 2016 that's called the Olympics. I think everybody's, uh, everybody's heard of that. Was that something that you were shooting for, knowing that you wanted to do that as you were finishing up at Arizona? How'd that all, was that no, a goal you had? Not at all. I think, um, uh, let's see, when I went back to tennis, it was that year of graduate school when I was there. So kind of like 2013, 2014, 2015 time. And I remember that I kind of felt like I didn't have my identity. Um, I, I didn't realize how much of my identity was wrapped up in Dana, the tennis player and things like that. And, um, and so I think that, you know, one of my friends suggested, well, why don't you go back in and join the team again? And I was a little nervous to do that because, you know, I had left and I didn't know if it would be awkward or kind of weird, but, you know, I started and, and the whole reason for me going back was just to kind of get that sense of myself back again, just that little puzzle piece of who I was. I didn't really have huge aspirations. And then once I started playing and realizing, like, I think I still got it a little bit, it's a little rusty, but it's, I got it. 
And um, then I think coaches and friends would mention Rio and the games. And I'm a very stubborn individual, which I think has helped me both in my recovery from my injury and then also just uh, accomplishing different things because I can be a little bit bullheaded. It's not always a great trait to have, that's for sure. But sometimes it's good. And so when people were like, well, you can't qualify for Rio with only a year. And I was like, try me. And so um, I just kind of saw that as a challenge in no in no way, shape, or form did I think it was a shoe-in that I would get in, but I just wanted to try. And um, my parents were really supportive of me taking the leave of absence for my graduate program to try to do it. They were like, you always have your brain, but your body's not always going to be able to, to compete on a, on a world stage like that, so you might as well try. And I was really shocked they were so supportive of that, to be honest. But um, my, my, the faculty at school was supportive, family was supportive, and so I took the leave of absence, went on tour full-time, and qualified for Rio by the skin of my teeth. Unbelievable. And you did, you <laughs> did really well there, too. You made the round of 16 in singles and quarters and doubles? I did, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I mean, it definitely was not a bad showing for my first games, but I think, you know, hopefully Tokyo still happens, knock on wood. I, oh. I think that I could do better this time. What, but I mean, just being there and experiencing everything around, I mean, that to me, that, that to me is even more cool than maybe the actual event that you're competing in. It happens once every four years. You're surrounded incredible. by the greatest athletes in the world. I, I, I think mean, my favorite moment from Rio actually had nothing to do with the tennis court. Um, it was during opening ceremonies, like we were parading in and everyone in the, in the crowd is chanting USA. And, you know, in terms of wheelchair sports or adaptive sports, you don't always pack stadiums. But this stadium was completely sold out. And, you know, it, it's dark in there and the people have their cameras with the lights on. So it looks like oh. stars. And, and I'm giving me going, chills right now. You're giving me chills. <laughs> about it right well, now. You're, so. you'll get more chills, or at least I do when I tell this story. So <laughs> we go in and you see USA flags. And you, when you see them, you kind of wave, but you can't really tell who's there. And at one point, I see this one flag just going nuts. And I, and I look at it and I wave and I keep looking. And then I finally realized it was my mom and my brother and my oh. family. And for me to be able to actually see them in that huge stadium that held thousands of people while I was down there, like it made me cry. Like that was when I realized that I'd really made it to a big stage. And so even though it had nothing to do with me competing, that's like my favorite sporting moment, bar none. Amazing. Amazing. You warned me you wouldn't do this like in the middle of our talk. So you have to Sorry. keep all these real emotional stuff till the end, but <laughs> so, so awesome. Um, wheelchair tennis, just because a lot of the listeners won't know. Um, yeah. that much about it. The, the chair that you compete in on the tennis court is, is a lot different than what you would use every day. It's a lot more mobile and everything, right? Extremely different. I think the best way to explain different sports chairs, and this applies for all um, wheelchair sports, is that you can think of it like shoes. So an everyday chair is kind of the able-bodied equivalent of a pair of flip-flops. They're good to get you from A to B, but you don't want to run in them. You don't want to do any fast, agile movements in them. And an everyday chair is designed that way. They're very thin and they're very light. And so they help you get through doors. They're small enough to get in and out of your car, things like that. But the way that they're designed is not for speed or agility. Whereas a tennis chair is the same thing as when you buy tennis shoes. It's made for that sport. And so the wheels more or less are kind of at an angle about like 20 degrees usually, and that allows you to spin very quickly, kind of like on a dime. And then the chairs also have um, 
almost like snowboard bindings that we put around our waist and around our legs to really bind us to the chair because you want your chair to be part of your body so that when I move my hips, my chair moves as well. Um, you wouldn't, it's like, you know, you don't want to think about it like a big hospital chair that you're trying to move and then, you know, you can't like get anywhere. These things are very state of the art and they're all fit to each athlete. So if you had a wheelchair, it would not fit me the same way mine wouldn't fit you. So they're very why don't, important to us. Why don't people just use that chair as their everyday chair if it's so much it's, more nimble and flexible? It's not conducive to, to everyday life because like I said, the wheels stick out. You can't really fit through doors. And there's also a wheel that comes out behind the chair. And that's so that when you lean back to serve, you don't tip over. Whereas everyday okay. chairs don't have that. So we can do wheelies and that's to get over lips of doors or pop-up curbs and stuff so life when you have to push in, an, in a wheelchair a daily a daily chair versus a tennis chair it's like night and day for the okay. settings that you're in now the also is the two bounce rule and talking with you before the two bounce rule you generally don't always want to do the two bounce rule definitely not no i think when you're first starting wheelchair tennis you're like yes two bounces i'm gonna use this all the time but once you get to the elite level nobody really uses it um enough of us have good enough chair skills and movement that you can get to that ball in one bounce and it's the same as able body tennis you want to take your opponent's time away so the faster i can get that ball back and get you out of position the better so i would say out of a whole match, you'll maybe see a wheelchair tennis player at the elite level use two bounces a small percentage of the time. Okay. Thanks. And this is educational as far yeah, as uh, watch on YouTube, inspirational. <laughs> so some of your professional experiences, and we already talked about Rio, which was amazing. Also the 2019 Parapan American Games, and you got golden doubles, 2016 British Open quarters, 2016 Japan Open, round of 16. You've been a World Cup team member a long, long time. U.S. Open the last three years in 2019. I feel so good about myself. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm just going to keep going. I can go for a long time. But the 2019 <laughs> uh, U.S. Open semis, you've talked about some of those amazing experiences that you've had um, professionally. Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. Open obviously stands out as as an American to get to play at the U.S. Open wheelchair player or not like that's the pinnacle, right? Um, because you've got, you know, you got home crowd advantage, all the fans automatically want you to win more than the other person because you're from America, the the fanfare, you know, like the there's fireworks and there's music and um, you know, going in and playing in Arthur Ashe was really cool. Um, I was I think I'm actually the first american in a chair to win a match on ash which is pretty cool let's go let's go <laughs> pretty cool um so yeah that that was definitely the u.s open and getting to play there will always be one of my favorite memories um but winning the medals at the parapans this year or i guess last year now was incredible um to be able to you know go up on that podium and see your flag raised and you get the person putting the medal on you and it like weighs your neck down like crazy it's it's huge um, I want to talk about the the size of the draws because for people who follow tennis, able-bodied tennis players, the slams yeah. are obviously the biggest draws. There are 128 yeah. draws, men and women. It is basically the opposite of how it is with um, wheelchair tennis players where yeah. the draw sizes in the slams are actually smaller than normal, which is crazy because then how does – that's generally where you – get the most money and most ranking points when you're thinking Thank you. <laughs> able body. So 
if this is so small and let and I think this drives this the draw size is eight eight players for singles and only four for doubles. So you're automatically in the semis for yes. doubles. Yes. So if you're not in the top eight or the top four, it's impossible to make a move in the rankings because you're getting all these points and yet I, I don't understand it. What's what is what's going on with all that? For the people that play that aren't um, the wild card, they get 100 points automatically. So it keeps them there, even if they lose first round. So there's uh, there's a whole bunch of things that need to be changed with that. Um, it is unfortunate, and that means that, you know, even though my current rank, I believe, is 11, um, unless it's gone down or, or up. I don't know what's changed with the rankings recently because we haven't been playing in so long. Right. But even though I'm ranked 11 in the world, I still don't qualify for a slam outright. And that's kind of ridiculous. Most able-bodied players would qualify. And even though my ranking is 11, I've beaten a lot of the girls that are, that are playing at those slams. And lucky, luckily for me, I get the, the wild card for the U.S. Open sometimes. Um, but it, it really does bother a lot of the wheelchair tennis community that although, although the level in terms of tennis performance is there, when you're maybe even all the way down to the top 15, top 20, um, we're still not included in those big events. And because of the way that the structure and point system works, it's extremely hard. It's not impossible, but extremely hard to break into that. I, I don't understand. It's kind of like the rich get richer type of thing. Um, 100% that's what it is. It's not even kind of that. 100% that's what it is. And I mean, if you're, 9, 10, if you're 9, 10, 11 in the world that, at anything, anything, yeah. that's incredible. And you should absolutely be qualified to compete in the biggest tournaments there are in that respective sport that that's well, thank you. part part of it is due to the fact that um wheelchair players are new additions to the slams which already is an amazing thing i think it's great that the u.s open wimbledon roland garros and um the aussie open have our have our divisions there but i think that now it's gone past that point where it's like yay we're including them I think we've proven that we, we are an elite level sport. And so you need to increase the draw sizes to showcase that. Because also for fans, how bad does it look if every time they go to a slam, you see the same eight people there all the time? That's boring, right? Like you want to see some upsets. You want to see some, you know, that's what's fun about the big grand slams where maybe Serena loses to someone or Halep loses to someone. And um, that's really Absolutely. exciting. And Absolutely. Um, well, hopefully, uh, like you said, I think as the notoriety becomes bigger, like you said, yeah. though, people will realize it is an elite sport. I mean, yeah. you, have a, you have a person nine and 10 in the world, and unless they get the wild card, they may not get into the slam. That That's makes exactly absolutely right. no sense to me. Well, I no think sense. that, you know, hopefully the, the Grand Slam tournament organizers, um, you know, see the merit in it. I think right now they just say that they don't have space for it. So we always come in at the second week, kind of when the right. juniors are playing and stuff. But you know, they're big, they're big tournament venues. I think there's space. So we'll see if it changes. I hope it does. I hope so too. You guys definitely deserve it. Definitely. hundred percent. Financials, USA finance, us financials versus <laughs> the world financials. Another, another discrepancy. I understand. Yes. Right? Yeah. Not to sound like I'm griping too much because wheelchair tennis is a pretty amazing sport, but yeah, being, being a wheelchair tennis player in America, I would say is a, is a bit harder than um, being a wheelchair tennis player in some other countries. Um, I know that there are struggles in a bunch of other countries as well, but to highlight some differences, like if you're a tennis player in England, say, um, which I've lived there for the past two years, so I've gotten to see it kind of up close. Um, the resources that they have, the sponsorships and the, the public interest that people have in them is completely night and day different to what we have here. 
Um, if you mention Paralympics there, people know what it is. If you mention it here, people think you're talking about the Special Olympics, which is a completely different entity um, to the Paralympics. And so I think a lot of people in other countries just know about wheelchair sports, much less wheelchair tennis, and see it as the level that it is. Like in Japan, um, some of the wheelchair tennis players, you might know of them, Shingo Kaneda and Yui Kamiji, they're seen as kind of like, you know, little celebrities in their own right. People, people from Japan follow Yui and Shingo all over our tour. They have groupies, like it's amazing. Whereas in the States, we're just a little bit behind. And as a result, that means that we don't get the funding and sponsorships that other players on the tour get. And that means that you have to get degrees and you sometimes have to get side jobs and do all those things. And so it's, it's something that definitely makes being a full-time wheelchair tennis player a lot more difficult. Um, I'm grateful that I have my degree. I think that in a way it's a really good thing that I have that, but it would be nice if I didn't have to think about all those extra things that my competitors don't. For sure. And I mean, part of what, why I like doing these interviews and I like having anybody who promotes the sport of tennis in general, and I know um, what you and your teammates are doing, stuff like this, Jason Harnett, who we both know, um, we, lo we both love Jason. <laughs> Alistair McCaw um, yeah. loves your program um, yeah. loves everything that wheelchair tennis is doing. So we'll keep pushing and keep getting the word out on it. And Thank hopefully <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll even up those, those differences a little bit. Thank as you. far as your experience and just your personality, um, you're so open in, in sharing your experience and, and the positives that have come out of all of this. Do you, is it your wish or, or do you even travel to schools and maybe talk uh, whichever manner you can with maybe kids who had a similar situation like you and inspire uh, them as well? I haven't done that yet. Um, I think this kind of goes back to my previous answer where there's just not a lot of knowledge about what we're doing. I think that if people knew about it, they'd be like, please come talk at our schools. And I say that because I, a lot of my friends make a living doing that in other countries. Um, so I think just the public interest isn't there. I would love to do that. I love working with kids. I've gotten to coach at different camps with juniors and stuff. and getting to kind of be a mentor for them the way that I had mentors when I was younger um, means a lot to me. So if there's ever been, if there's ever going to be some sort of opportunity for speaking engagements like that, I would love to do that. I think it's really important to educate and give back like that. And especially now with the, you know, with, with the virus going on, a lot of kids yeah. are maybe doing e-learning. It could be simple as setting up a Zoom call like this. That's 100% true. So if anyone listening wants me to do that, let me know. <laughs> I'm keeping a note. I'm definitely keeping a note on my list. Um, you talk about how education is so important to you, and we haven't touched upon this yet, but you said you lived in London for the past two years, and that was yeah. for you to get your master's in audiology, right? Yes. But during that time, you were still playing tournaments again. That never went away. That's right. Um, a big reason why I wanted to move to London, aside from I'd always wanted to live abroad as a kid and study abroad. And, and then I realized that since I'm studying a medical degree, I needed to go somewhere that speaks English because I'm not going to do someone's case history in French or something like that. So it really narrowed it down to like Canada or England. And so I picked England, um, and it also had the benefit of being a really easy place in terms of travel for competitions on the tour, because I could take the Eurostar to Belgium or France or, or whatever, instead of these long-haul flights from California all the way over to Europe. So um, it kind of was the best of both worlds. But yeah, I got my master's, and I, and I competed on the tour 
for the past two years, it was great. I somehow stayed in the top 20 the whole time, which was amazing and reached a high of number nine. So that was pretty cool. Well, that's awesome uh, that you do have your masters. And again, uh, I know wheelchair tennis players can play into their forties. Roger's about to going to be 40 soon. So <laughs> we're not, we're not pushing you to retire from tennis yet. You still got some work to do on the court, but, uh, like you said, education has always been stressed and it's, it's yeah. going to be very nice to have when you do decide to, to, to hang it up. But uh, you, still got, you still got plenty of time left. We're not rushing. I hope so. I still have some, some stones to kind of turn over in the tennis world and see what comes up. Got it. Well, um, like I said, this really, really thank you for, for sharing your story and appreciate how open you are in sharing it with me and, and with others. And, you know, when, I, I was listening to previous interviews, getting prepared for our talk, and a word that comes out of your mouth quite a bit is the word grateful. And people in, um, in your situation, looking from the outside, when they hear that you use that word grateful, will be like, wow. Like, and, I, and I even, some of the, the, the hosts of those interviews were like, grateful, wow. Yeah, they're like, does she know what grateful means? <laughs> And if and I'm going to leave this to you because I would not do it a, a service at all. Um, talk about the term of that word and why you continually use that word when you are um, getting interviewed. Yeah, I think, um, and again, this, this could even loop back to, to my mom kind of, you know, not letting me wallow in the situation. Like I was allowed to be sad for 15 minutes and then you just move on with your day. And that kind of mindset has allowed me to not focus on my disability and allowed me to see beyond it and see the things that it's afforded me in my life. Um, I would be completely lying to you if I said I love being in a wheelchair. I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me. That would be a lie because I know what it's like to be able-bodied and it is easier. However, tennis um, in a wheelchair has afforded me some of the coolest experiences of my entire life. I've gotten to travel the world. I've gotten to represent my country numerous times. Um, wearing USA on your back is such an honor and it's such a cool feeling. And I would never do that as an able-bodied individual, or I don't think I would. Um, I moved to London to, to study for school and I probably wouldn't do that if I wasn't also playing tennis. Um, so it's, it's changed my life in some pretty crazy ways that I maybe didn't wish for, but it's also changed my life in incredible ways. Like I'm speaking to you now from Florida, which I don't think I would have lived in, but I'm here because of tennis. So it's definitely taken me in a lot of really cool directions that I definitely wouldn't have had, had this disability not more or less come into my life, if you want to put it that way. So I am grateful. Yeah, um, you, are, you are a sensational individual. And, oh, thank um, you. <laughs> special individual and thank you again for spending time sharing your story you've inspired me and thousands of others and i cannot wait for um the listeners to hear this again shout out to you shout out to your support system because everyone around you has done an incredible job thank you thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. bye